Every year on the first and the fifth Sundays in Lent, we sing the great litany. I thought I'd say a word about it because it was the first piece of English liturgy uh, that King Henry allowed to be used in, in the Church of England in 1544, which was five years before the first book of common prayer. Some of you may have said, when is this going to end? Good. But we do it on the first and the fifth Sunday uh, because, you know, at least this litany has removed uh, the petition uh, against the Pope and all his detestable enormities. <laughs> that was in the original one. But we don't, out of ecumenical solicitude, we don't do that anymore. This is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent began on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. So in my sermon, I want to say some things about the season of Lent, some things about the themes that were given to us for Lent uh, on Ash Wednesday, and then to preach on the gospel, which Father Cockrell just read to you, and it is about the temptation of Christ, Matthew's version of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Every first Sunday in Lent, we read one of the versions of the temptation of Christ from either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And Matthew is year A, so we're reading Matthew's version this year. And the temptation of Christ is an important uh, beginning for the season of Lent because it allows each of us to think about whatever temptations are in front of us on a regular basis. And if we believe that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, that maybe there's something to learn for us about he ha how he handled the temptations that he faced. So that's why this is an important day. I mention this often when I preach about the origins of the Christian year, but as you know, after Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended into heaven, we didn't immediately have the disciples and apostles traipse down to St. Luke's downtown Jerusalem and begin to celebrate services from the Book of Common Prayer. The liturgical year went through a process of development, and so originally, there was a very mini season of preparation uh, prior to Easter, which was sort of the first post in the liturgical year, about three days. Then it became a week, and then it became 40 days. The principal emphasis of Lent in the beginning was for the intensification of the final preparation of those who were to be baptized on Easter, which was in the first three centuries or so of Christianity, the only time anybody got baptized was at the great vigil of Easter. So it was a preparatory season. One of the things about the liturgical renewal in the church over the last now nearly 50 years has been the recovery of what is known in fancy language as a baptismal ecclesiology. And that means that our baptism is central to our self-understanding 
as the people of God and constitutes a location for each of us to see how we're doing with regard to living the Christian faith in life. And so the season of Lent can be a time when we reconnect to our own baptismal vows. Every Ash Wednesday I come into the church sometime during the day and open the prayer book to page 304 and I read the baptismal covenant and I ask myself how am I doing uh, this year and where, what are maybe some of uh, the soft spots. You know, I was just thinking after saying this, this would be a commercial message from me to you that if you don't have a prayer book, maybe you ought to get one. It would be a good thing to do. It's sort of central to our worshiping life as Episcopalians. But something else happened in parallel to this business about baptism. I expect it got the most traction after the Constantinian settlement, which is when Constantine, the Roman emperor, made Christianity the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so a lot of people got baptized right away. So you were uh, pretty well, you know, going through uh, everyone. And now infant baptism was probably coming to be the norm. And so you had a situation where, what do you do during this season? Well, for those who were being prepared for baptism, you intensified the preparation. But for other people, it may have been then a season where you thought about your baptismal promises but also, as a sort of um, metaphor, you said, this is 40 days now, by now. So we, like the Savior who goes into the wilderness for 40 days, we're going to spend 40 days, too, thinking about um, our lives in a special way, the examined life. You know, Christian people say the examined life, the unexamined life is not a life worth living. So rather than understand this as some sort of a navel-gazing undertaking, uh, it's important to be reflective about who we are, what we do, and the nature of our relationships. So that is what the season uh, is about. It's not either or, it's, it's both and. On Ash Wednesday, uh, three themes or if you will, predicates, are given to us for the whole season of Lent, uh, and they are these. Repentance, reconciliation, and clean motives. So repentance is the process whereby each of us seek in big and small ways to uh, be reconverted, to turn around and look at our life in a new way, to be able to see that not only does this involve our interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but it resolves some species, uh, involves some species of resolve with regard to how we wish to put it in our hands and to in some way uh, make the appropriate adjustments in our relational life that uh, allow us to mature in the spirit. So repentance is an important part of the Christian faith in life. Reconciliation is the affirmation that each one of us are to be ministers of reconciliation in the world. Page 855 of the Book of Common Prayer, what is the mission of the church? 
The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. That somehow our role as reconcilers is important. And that you and I need to understand that, not just in religious terms specifically, but that in the wider culture we're to be instruments of reconciliation. That's why it's so important for Christian people to be peacemakers, to be people of peace, to bring people uh, together of disparate views and to say now we're going to seek um, the points of agreement and how we might move forward in such a way as to do the best for the most. That that's something we want to labor to do. So being a person of reconciliation is important. And finally, clean motives has something to do with the way in which uh, you live your life in relationship. And that if you begin to understand that you're living your life with corrupt motives or self-seeking, uh, this is a good time of year to think about how you can make the appropriate adjustments with regard to that. This is a good segue to the gospel because perhaps more than any other gospel writer, Matthew gives us a Jesus who is concerned about our motives, who is concerned about our interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states and wishes us to understand some things about the necessity for greater proximity between the letter and the spirit. That that is important. So today we have Matthew's version of the temptation of Christ. Here's some 3995 biblical scholarship. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the temptation of Christ. Matthew and Luke's story is all but identical. And biblical scholars would say that this is one of the places in the synoptic gospels where Matthew and Luke have relied on the source called Q. Q is a, a stands for a German word, quella, which means source. So, you know, I do this fairly frequently, but I think here's Father Brewer's breathless tour of the synoptic theory. Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark to write their gospel. Mark is the earliest gospel. Matthew had some material that was special to him, called Special M. Luke had some material that was special to him, and it was called Special L. And both Matthew and Luke had a source common to the both of them known as Q. So today, I thought I'd just highlight for you that you're hearing from Q. So you may say, well, I, you know, I, I probably could have done without that. I know, but I have a high pressure of speech. And so I thought it might be an important thing to let you know about. You never know when you can amaze your friends with this kind of... <laughs> This kind of knowledge, you know, like they say on sports talk radio, good knowledge. It's always important to have good knowledge about this kind of thing. So Jesus is in the wilderness. And Father Thomas Keating tells us some things leading up to this. First of all, he would say, if you were to say, 
how would I understand spiritual progress if I begin to work in the areas that I spoke about on Ash Wednesday with regard to where are the places you and I must struggle most spiritually. And he would refer to these as the three energy centers where we locate our irrational programs for happiness. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. If you were making some progress in these areas, one of the ways you might be able to do that is to resolve that you are going to take responsibility for your own being and destiny. You are going to take responsibility for your own being and destiny. And the story of the temptation of Christ, to some degree, is about how we see the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, the Savior of the world, take responsibility for his own being and destiny. So Father Keating says this about what went on in the wilderness. Those of you in school who uh, took any classes in depth psychology may recognize some of this uh, terminology. Jesus redeemed us from the consequence of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the emergence of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness over identification with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without, of course, ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects for happiness. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race. He bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. And Father Cockrell observed at the sermon discussion at 9 o'clock an important thing. This was not his definitive temptation that he overcomes. This will now reproduce itself in his earthly ministry again and again. And so if we understand the Savior is the template, we too can expect that while we begin to gain insight and understanding about security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control, we will face those challenges and opportunities as we live our life desiring to know more fully God's will and purpose for us. You know, the early period of Christianity, the first three or four hundred years, did a lot of conver had a lot of conversation and writing around things that may appear unimportant to people these days, but one of them was, did Jesus go through a, um, did, he, did he go through a period of moral development? 
Did Jesus need to be taught, get up and brush your teeth? And the conclusion that they came to was, yes, he did. He's a human being. He had to be socialized, just like all of us had to be socialized. And, you know, particularly since uh, for the last four or five hundred years in Christianity, there gets to be this idea of the nature of divinity. And the divinity of Christ would allow you to think, well, he just didn't need to do any of this. He was six inches off the ground during the entire period he was here on earth, and he had no real kind of human development of any kind. Well, if you went back to first century Palestine and you saw Jesus and you wanted him to talk about NASA, he would not know what you were talking about. He would not know what a space capsule was. And for those people who would say, well, he's God. How in the world would that not be so? Well, you know what? In first century Palestine, they didn't think about God like we've thought about God since about 1519. So it's different. And that's why it's important for us to be people of some form of reflection and thinking about these matters. It's one of the things that the, a banner of the Episcopal Church flies as being an important thing. Some may say, well, you go too far. Who knows? This week, think about those programs for happiness that we all have around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. All of these things you and I must be involved in for our own survival and humanity. You and I need to be concerned about security and survival. We need to be concerned about affection and esteem. And we need to be concerned about how we use the power and control that we have in big and small ways. Jesus was tempted by security and survival. Turn these stones into bread. Affection and esteem. Go up to the pinnacle, throw yourself off. The angels love you. They'll hold you up, give you big hugs, and let you back down to earth. Take him up to a high place and say, If you worship me, you can have all this. Power and control. We all need to do these things in some way, but we need to have them in balance. And we need to use them, I think, for godly purposes. So the season of Lent is a time when we reflect on how to do that, and we ask God to help us do that. Paul today, in this rather uh, convoluted uh, section from Romans, said perhaps the best line, No one who believes in him will be put to shame, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen.